Your story is your greatest asset. Do you believe that? Or do you sometimes feel like it's too mediocre to be useful or so bad that it disqualifies you? If you're feeling like your story can't contribute to the cosmic battle between good and evil, you're being accused by Satan who doesn't want it to be unleashed. The Bible tells us that we overcome the enemy by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. So your story must matter. Dana Gresh offers three ways to overcome the lie that your story doesn't matter in this message originally delivered at Grace Prep, a new model for Christian education. We practice radical vulnerability as opposed to powerless superficiality. This produces authentic community. Satan wants to make you believe that your story is too mediocre to be useful or so bad that it disqualifies you. But telling it is critical in overcoming the enemy. Covered in Christ's blood, your story is your greatest asset. Your story is your greatest asset. I don't know which of those two categories you fall into. My story is too mediocre to be useful. I don't really have a testimony like, uh, you know, drugs, rock and roll. And then I got saved at the age of five. You know, I've heard that testimony. People are like, I just don't know how to, like, what, what do I have to contribute? My story is so mediocre. And then I hear people who just feel disqualified by their story. But I very rarely hear anybody that doesn't fight one of those two battles. And sometimes you get them both because you fight the, my story's too mediocre, and then you do derail, and then you feel too bad. That's been, that was my life story. But today I want to open Revelation 12, 11 and really just in, uh, kind of just like study that passage. It's a passage that God has used to speak to me very, very much. And it's a passage God has used to tell me that my story is powerful and your story is powerful. Do you believe that? Um, when you find Revelations 12, would you go ahead and stand up? We're going to read that. Before we do, I'm going to pray that the Lord would just allow you to hear it with fresh ears, that his spirit would speak to you instead of mine. Um, go ahead and stand up for the reading of the word. Revelation 12, beginning in verse 7. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Lord Jesus, would you speak to us through these words? Would you make these, these verses that you ordained, that you ordered to be written and for us to read, Come alive to us. You tell us that your word is alive and active. Make it alive and active in this room today. May we hear no voices but the voice of the living, loving God as we listen to your word. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. 
Okay, I want to show you using this passage how your story has magnificent power to overcome the enemy. And I'm going to give you three things that you need to do to utilize your story as a powerful weapon. But before we do that, um, I want to just cover one thing very clearly. Uh, Satan is alive. He is an entity that is not uh, figurative thought. Evil is not some mystical concept. Satan is alive and well. If we believe that there is a God in heaven and that he is a, 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 an actual entity, we have to then believe that there is, uh, Satan is not just a, a mystical figure, but alive and well. And the Bible tells us that in the early part of creation, he was cast out of heaven. He was the worship leader of heaven. He was the one, he was one of the most beautiful angels that God had ever created. And he led the angels in worshiping before the throne of God. And at one point he became prideful and said, I want to be like God. Why should I be the worshiper? I want to be worshiped. And so the Bible tells us that early in creation, he was cast out of heaven and that there were many angels who said, yeah, we like his plan and his idea. And they were cast out of heaven with him. Now, as we read this passage in Revelation, this is not that casting out of heaven. This is a casting out of heaven that will come in the future at the end times. I had to call a Bible scholar on Saturday, a friend who studied Revelation very much top to bottom, compared it with Old Testament passages, New Testament passages. And she shared with me that this is something that will happen in the future when Satan will be defeated finally. Because what we know, and I said, wait a minute, wasn't he already cast out of heaven? And she said, well, he was, but the Bible tells us that he has the ability to go to God the Father before the throne to accuse us. And we have record of that in the book of Job. You've read that maybe, the story of how Satan goes to, to God and says, hey, what about this guy? This is what I think. Let's do this to him and see if he still loves you then, right? Well, he does that for you and for me. Satan goes to the throne of God and accuses us. And he is alive and well in doing that. You know how you can know that that's true? You can hear the accusations in your head. You can hear the I'm not enough. I can't do this. I'm going to fail. I don't belong. All those things in your head, right? Somebody raise their hand who hasn't had those thoughts. We all face them. We all hear the whispers of the accuser in our head. And I don't know why it works this way, but somehow God believes in us enough to say, hey, give them the choice of whether they believe me or whether they believe you. Let them pick who they want to follow. Give them that free will. Because he didn't want to be loved by a bunch of puppets, a bunch of robots. He wanted to be in a love relationship with you and I. That's why the Bible tells us everything is, ben everything is permissible. You can do anything you want. But is it all beneficial for you? God says, hey, you can do anything you want with your life. But let me give you some guidelines so that you know what's good for you. So Satan is alive and well, and he is accusing you and I. To accuse means to charge someone with an offense or claim someone has done something wrong. Now, one of the ways that I have felt my emotions telling me that I was being accused is that every time I would speak or teach, I would feel like I just, um, that, that you didn't want me here. I felt that way in chapel. Um, I felt that way, I, I felt that way for as long as I can remember. 
And I feel that way when I go to a Secret Keeper Girl event, to teach at a Secret Keeper Girl event. I think, ah, these guys would be so much happier if I weren't here. Like, I come in and I shake it up. And in more recent years, I've been, these guys would be so much happier if I weren't here because I'm so old. And I celebrated my 51st birthday today, which makes me one year older. And I would go to these big events to speak before women, thousands of women sometimes, and I would think, ah, these guys are better than me, they're more scholarly than me, and they're less sinful than I am. And I always just felt like something was off. Here's the thing, Satan's favorite way to accuse us is not blunt. He loves it to just make us feel a little off. You see, it didn't cripple me. It didn't stop me from going and teaching. It didn't stop me from coming here and writing a message and loving teaching. It didn't stop any of that. But it just, it just, it just kind of slowed me down, and I couldn't find the joy in it. And I maybe wasn't as fruitful as I could be. And so if you think there's something that's just a little off, something's off. Because that's Satan's favorite way to accuse us. It might be a sense of competitiveness. You might be just like, ah, I always want to win. And if I'm not winning, I just don't want to play the game. And I don't know. I'm starting to feel like maybe that's not okay. Maybe it's a sense of jealousy or feeling less than or not enough. Or in a whole room of people like this feeling really lonely. The favorite way he loves to dismantle us is subtle. The kind of thing where you're like, it's not that big of a deal. I'm just not going to tell anyone because it's not really affecting me, you think. Because if he's subtle, he can dismantle us and hobble us instead of getting us to reach out for help. Now, here's the truth about Satan. Number one, let's look at John 8, 44. I want you to see this one. Turn over in your Bibles. You might put your finger in Revelation because we're going to come back to that. John 8, 44, one of my favorite verses about Satan, if there can be such a thing. It says this. This is Jesus speaking about Satan. Beginning in about halfway through. He was a murderer from the beginning. So who's the true criminal that deserves to be accused here? Not you, not me. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Every lie you've ever heard came from the heart of Satan, except the one I told Bob about what I was going to give him for his birthday on Saturday. That was not a lie. That was bad. That was a good lie. Sometimes they're secrets. We should call them secrets. We should call them secrets, not lies. But the lies that we, believe, that we hear about ourselves, about our worth, and about our sense of value, those lies are from Satan. He, the only language he's ever known is the language of lying. It is his native tongue. Like you speak English or Mandarin as your first language or Spanish as your first language. Lying is Satan's first language. It's what he knows. And when he accuses you, he is lying. You know what my lie was when I got to the root of coming here to speak in chapel and, not, and feeling all those feels that I couldn't quite identify what to call them? Um, the lie was I don't belong. I didn't feel like I belonged here. 
I didn't feel like I belonged at Secret Keeper Girl. I didn't feel like I belonged at these women's retreats, some of which I had planned and orchestrated and invited everybody to. I felt like I didn't belong. And you know what's ironic to me is so many times the lies I have watched you believe are so very much the antithesis of what is obviously true. It's always the student who is obviously bound to be an honor scholar who believes the lie, I am not smart enough. It is always the girl or the guy who just is a joy to be around and brings joy to everybody who believes the lie, I don't fit in here. And it's always the person who is exploding with obvious potential that you just can't even imagine what God's going to do with this life that believes, I don't have any purpose. God, what's your plan for me? Satan loves to take whatever our strengths are and dismantle them with subtle emotional discord and chaos so that we can't hear the voice of truth. He is a liar. That's the first thing you need to know about the accusations. And here's the other thing you need to know about his accusations. Look at um, Revelations 12, verse 12. This is my favorite, favorite verse about Satan. That one we just read has to be my second favorite because this verse tells me that his time is short. In verse 12, um, well, the whole passage we just read, actually. Verse 12, verse 12, uh, 10. 9 and 10. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil Satan, the deceiver of the world, thrown down to the earth. His angels were thrown down. And I heard a loud voice saying, now the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God, the authority of Christ have come. The accuser has been thrown down. His time is short. He doesn't get forever with us. And it makes him mad, and it makes him furious, and that's why he lies. And here's the thing. Satan doesn't know, just like we don't know, when Christ is returning. Um, Many Bible scholars believe that he raises up an antichrist in every generation who can fulfill that potential and that purpose because he doesn't know. He can only watch the signs and the times that we've been given in the scriptures, just like we can watch the signs and the times. And so he is constantly getting freaked out. And you know what? There are a lot of end signs times alive and well right now. Earthquakes all over the place. Floods and uh, weather patterns that are just crazy Lack of family love throughout the entire globe. Bible tells us that one of the end times of the end times is that we will be without love for family. And it's everywhere in our culture. And you know what? I think that makes Satan really mad. And I think it makes him go before the throne a whole lot more to accuse you a whole lot more. And we can see that in the statistics of anxiety and depression and self-harm and ER visits for teenagers who are at death's door because of self-harm and mutilation. He's angry, but he's a liar, and his time is short. So what are you going to do? You're in a spiritual battle. I'm sure of it. I don't know if you're sure of it. I'm sure of it because I feel it. I feel those crazy conflicting emotions. Maybe you don't. Maybe every day you wake up and you say, I have the perfect life. I have the perfect hair, and I have the perfect friends, and I have the perfect grades, and I am everything perfect. Maybe you feel that way. Great. 
I don't. I usually wake up. Today was a great exception. And I, I have some anxiety and some fear and some, and I have to fight the battle with the enemy every single day. Today was an exception. I woke up and I said, hi, Jesus. Thanks for making me. I don't know why I said that, but that's what I said when I got out of bed. How corny is that? Here's the three things you need to know if you feel accused. One, you are more powerful than Satan. You are more powerful than Satan. Verse 210 says, tells us that you have authority over him if you know Christ. So this passage is all about Satan being thrown down, cast down, right? And what's happened in the preparation for that throwing down and that casting down, two things. Jesus died and our testimony. Jesus died and our testimony. That's what equips God to have everything in place to throw him down. And, and it says that what happens is that the authority of his Christ have come. That authority is on you. Isaiah 61 tells us um, that the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to set captives free, to bind up the brokenhearted. That authority is in me. I have the authority. You know all the miracles that Jesus did, all the miracles the disciples did? I have that authority and more. Because Jesus said that when he goes to the Father, we would do even greater things. Do we see that happening in our churches? No. And I'm so frustrated about it. I want to see the real thing. I want to see it alive and well. And you know why we don't have it? Because we don't believe it's in us. We want to see it. We want to see somebody do it. We just don't believe it could possibly be me that has it. Well, I'm going to start believing that I have it. Because how do I know that Isaiah 61 is about me and not just Jesus? Because it was prophetic about Christ coming. Well, because I'm the body of Christ. I am his hands and his feet. And Jesus said, I would do greater things than he did. You have the authority. So you may be walking around saying, I can't forgive that friend who hurt me. Yes, you can, because for unforgiveness is from Satan. That's believing the accusations and the I can'ts of Satan. And you can forgive through Christ. You might be saying, I can't make it through this year. I can't make it through these next six months. I just can't do it. I don't like how my life looks. I don't like how my friendship looks. I don't like, yes, you can. You can do all things through Christ. And that means you can make it through 10th grade. You can do everything through him. You have authority to overcome. And not just to overcome, but to do it with joy and happiness and confidence. Here's the next thing you need to know. You have authority, number one. Two, we overcome the accuser by the blood of the lamb. You overcome by the blood of the lamb. I want to talk to you a little bit about the paschal lamb. The pas I don't even know if I'm saying that right, because I study the Bible a lot. It's like, I love it. I'm geeky about it. I have all these fun tools that Bob gives me. Did I say it wrong? So when it comes to me studying the Bible, I'm driving without a license, people. And I am absolutely happy to do that because a lot of the great people in the Bible were doing that too. But the paschal lamb, isn't that the sweetest little face? I just want to cuddle with that on Christmas morning. I want to give it a name and I want to keep it forever. And I don't know what its name would be. Somebody, what would its name be? Paschal? Oh, that would be so cute. So um, after the Israelites were delivered out of Egypt, the Lord commanded them to take a pure and spotless lamb. As it was a baby, they would take it from its mother when it was weaned. And that 
lamb was to be protected. So they would often take it into their homes because that lamb couldn't have any defect on it. One of the specific things that the Bible instructed was that the lamb could not have any broken bones. Exodus 12, 5 and 46 says it has to be without blemish and with no broken bones. So this lamb couldn't get scratched by a bush. This lamb couldn't have anything on its body. It had to be perfect and beautiful and clean and spotless. So they would take that sweet little lamb as soon as it was weaned into their home and it would become like a pet. You know what I think? I think they probably named that little lamb because how could you not name name that little lamb? I would name that little lamb. And then on Passover, they took that sweet lamb that they had cuddled with and slept with and held. It was Elia. I'm sure that they slept with it because in February of this year, I was sleeping with a baby goat because that little baby goat, her name is Cindy Lou Who. Mm. Her mama died in labor. And um, as I was comforting her, I slept with her for three nights in a row because she was crying for her mama. And I slept with her until I could get her to sleep in a box. And then I got her, you know what? I think they probably went through some of that as they comforted these lambs that were separated from their mamas knowing that they would take that lamb on Passover day to be a sacrifice. That puts things in some perspective, doesn't it, about Christmas and Jesus and this sweet baby being born. The battle on Christmas morning was cataclysmic. It was prophesied in Psalm 34:20 that Jesus would have no broken bones and that he would be without blemish. And it was recorded in John 19:36 that although it was the pattern of crucifixion for their bones to be broken to prove that they were dead, that Jesus was an exception and they did not break his bones. You know, you can't win the battle without Jesus. I've never seen it work. Even in psychological counseling, they say that psychology only gets you so far without prayer and meditation. They don't see long-term healing of mental health for individuals. You need Jesus. Even the secular world that doesn't want to use his name will say, we don't know why, but for some reason there has to be an element of meditative prayerfulness in a person's life or they're not going to have mental wellness that they're really looking for. You need Jesus. You cannot overcome your jealousy, your insecurity, your fears, your pain, your hurt without Jesus, period. And you can't be made perfect to stand before God without Jesus. You know, one of the things they do with on lamb farms, they still do this today, is during the birthing season, they call it the lambing season, um, oftentimes there is a mother who dies, like my Cindy Lou, whose mama died in labor, or there's a baby that dies. And one of the things I tried to do as soon as um, Cindy's mama died is I tried to get another female goat on my farm to adopt her. And I brought her right into the farm, into the barn right away, and she just wouldn't. She just headbutted her, and she was ma- angry. And I knew it was a pretty big long shot, but I thought I'd try. And um, there was no accepting of her at all. Well, what you have to do in that, in that situation, what they do on these lamb farms, is they take the skin off of the dead baby lamb from this mama who's still alive, and they put it on the dead baby lamb. And when that mama smells that baby that's not really hers, she sees her baby's skin. 
She smells her baby's scent, and she receives her baby. That's what Jesus has done for us. When we stand before God, he doesn't see us. He sees the spotless lamb of his son. He died for us. You cannot overcome whatever emotional stuff you're struggling with without Jesus. And you can't help us overcome Satan without Jesus. But the third thing I want you to know is you overcome the accuser by the word of your testimony. And this is where we get to radical vulnerability. Bob and I have often used James 5.16 to talk about this. Confess your sins one to another, and then you will be healed. When did we become a church that we came to church with all of our cute clothes, and we sang songs and listened to worship? It was kind of a performance, and we stopped coming with our messy sin and ugliness. Church is not a country club. It's a hospital where we come with our sickness and our brokenness. That's what, that's what I read in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, is that we come with our brokenness. We don't come in our perfection. You know what? I think there's a lot of people who find Christian, Christianity hard to believe because we're so hypocritical. That's because we walk into church and we talk about all the rules and all the perfection Instead of walking in the church and talking about our wounds and our imperfection, we act like we don't need a Savior when we get there. When in fact, almost every day of my life, I very much do need a Savior. I very much do need saved and rescued. And I'll tell you, my most recent rescue was this issue of showing up like to chapel and not feeling like I belong. Anybody ever feel that when they walk into these doors? You ever felt, I mean, whether you're a teacher or a student or you're an alumni, I have a bunch of alumni here. Did you ever walk into these doors and feel like, I don't know if I belong here? Just raise your hands if that's been something you felt. So I'm not the only one. Well, I decided um, to tell nine friends a few weeks ago. I decided to finally tell them. You know, it kind of felt stupid because I was like, mm, this isn't that big of a deal. Like some of my friends in this group were confessing really big things. One of my friends, for the very first time, confessed that she'd been raped in college. And her hearts just broke. We've been in fellowship with her and known her all these years and not known that heartache. Others were confessing really, really deep stuff. And I'm thinking, oh, this is just so stupid because I feel like what God's telling me to say is I just feel this emotion. I can't even figure out what it is. But when I walk into chapel to speak at Grace Prep or when I, and they were the ones that helped me to identify, do you feel like you don't belong? And I was like, yes, that is what I feel like. And they said, do you feel that with your family? And I said, yes. Do you feel that with your marriage? Yes. Do you feel that with your friends, with us? Yes. And so they asked me to pray. They said, let's, you know what? It sounds like you've dealt with, you've used, I, you know, I've done a lot of stuff. I've used Bible verses to tell me that I do belong. I've prayed. I've talked to God. I've even paid counselors to help me talk through this. And it, nothing's worked. And they said, okay, well, since you've done all of that, and Jesus wants to rescue you, you know he wants to rescue you. You know he wants to be an overcomer. You believe this stuff in Revelation. You believe this stuff in Isaiah 61. Let's pray and ask him to do what he promised he would do, that he'd rescue you, that he'd set you free. And I was like, whatever. 
because I didn't really believe it. You ever like that? You're like, yeah, I want to be set free, but I just don't really think it's going to happen. Anybody? I want this to change, but I don't know if I believe it will. So they prayed for me, and um, they asked me, sometimes when we have a pattern of thinking or emotions that doesn't go away, it's really rooted in our childhood that we somehow started believing something from an experience that we just didn't understand. As children, we are great observers, terrible interpreters. So we see something, we think it means this, and we're not old enough to really understand what it means. So immediately I went back to a memory that's not an all emotional for me. Um, I have really the world's greatest brother. He is phenomenal, good, godly man, always has been there for me in every crisis, every hurt, every hardship. And I remember a time in college where I broke up with a boy I'd been dating for a really long time and I was a wreck. And he, I have this, I kept this card. I still have it in my treasured box. He sent me a card and he wrote on it, not to worry that God had someone really special for me, that he knew that I was walking through this earth and I was an electron in a galaxy of protons. Now, if you know my brother, this was quite the romantic thought. He was saying that I was going to be, what do electrons and protons do? They attract to one another, right? And he was saying I was an electron and the protons all around were going to be, it was, it was scientific, nerdy, sisterly encouragement. I did in fact find my proton, his name is Bob Gresh. I like him quite a lot. <laughs> electron. <laughs> So I'm very thankful for my godly good brother. He has struggled um, in his first few months of life to live. And he spent a lot of time in the hospital, and we prayed for him a great deal. And I remember, I was only four and a half, but I remember not being with my mom and my dad during that time. And I remember not being with my baby brother. I very distinctly remember visiting the hospital and seeing them in a window several stories up because I wasn't old enough to go visit them, but I was waving them from a distance. And that picture came into my mind, and it's a picture that it's, again, I, I remember that picture, but it's never been hurtful or emotional because I have a very, fairly healthy family as far as families can be healthy. And, um, and yet, it makes a lot of sense, wouldn't it? That all of my I don't belong insecurities might be rooted in being four and a half years old and separated from my fa loving family. I don't belong in that picture. How can I belong in this one? And so as my friend said, let's pray about that and ask God to rearrange that for you. I had the most powerful encounter with God's spirit that I've ever had in my entire life. Now I have prayed like this a lot of times without having an encounter this powerful, but this was a special thing. I felt myself in that picture when God started to take control of my imagination and he lifted my little four and a half year old heart up and it was like a movie screen projected me around like this and dropped me into my mother's heart and I could feel the love of my mother. I could feel the love of my father. I knew I was in my mother's heart, but I felt the love of my father and I felt the love of God and I'm telling you, feeling those things is different 
than believing them. Feeling them is a experience that was too powerful for me. I, I, I was so overwhelmed and undone and I was crying and I was giggling and I was every, all the emotions at the same time. And I literally was like, God, I can't, I can't feel this for long. Don't make me feel. And it was a euphoric, good feeling, but so overwhelming and so powerful that I couldn't feel it for long. And there's an encounter written about D.L. Moody who says that he had an experience like that in a hotel room where he cried out to God to stay thy hand because he couldn't stand the power of it. I felt so loved that I have not been the same since then. I keep telling my family, I don't think I'm the same. And they're like, you think? Because I'm like staying at parties longer and I'm trying to find out who I can hug. And I'm, the, the truth isn't I belong the truth is, I feel like I was created to love you. It's, the truth is not about me. Like, my truth, I can't even tell you what my truth is, except that I love you more than I loved you a month ago. And I want you to have an encounter like that with God. You might not have it today. You might not have it next month. You might not have it till you're 50. I'm sorry, but that's when it happened for me. But you can have it. This message was presented at Grace Prep, a new model in Christian education. If you enjoyed it and want to learn more about the power of your story, you'll enjoy a book entitled The Secret of the Lord, The Simple Key That Will Revive Your Spiritual Power by Dana Gresh. It's available exclusively at danagresh.com. This podcast was produced by Pure Freedom Ministries.